Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Brett Scott, who is the author of The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. Uh, I'm here talking with Brett Scott. Brett, how are you doing today? Uh, great. Thanks for having me on, Heath. So, yeah, Brett, it's a, talking to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have read the book a little bit outside of my normal reading area, but there's a lot of really good stuff um, uh, that crosses disciplines and fundamentally relates to what a lot of political scientists are interested in. Before we get to the book, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you are now. We'll, we'll talk about your, your um, background as it relates to the, the book a bit, yes. but uh, you know, give, us, give us a little uh, a bio of, of who you are. <laughs> Um, well, currently, let me say what I'm doing currently. I mean, right now, I maybe I class myself as an economic explorer, or perhaps, perhaps loosely speaking, an economic anthropologist. Although I don't really have to do that in sort of an academic sense. Um, I basically try to explore different parts of the financial system or different economic systems, and um, um, sort of see what I like about alternatives to mainstream economics and mainstream finance. Um, and I also work as a consultant to various groups, um, a lot of sort of campaign groups. Um, so recently I've been working with Action Aid, um, a few other groups in London. Um, and I'm also spending quite a lot of time with startups and entrepreneurs who are trying to sort of build alternative finance platforms and alternative economics um, type initiatives. Um, and then I also do some journalism, I guess, to make a bit of cash on the side. Um, so I guess, yeah, I've got, I've got a few different hats on. And um, I, uh, the sort of path that led me to this position, in a way, was I came from South Africa, um, which you might tell from my, my accent. Mm-hmm. And I actually studied anthropology um, and history in, in South Africa um, and then did a master's degree in international development. Um, which for those of you who don't know, it's a kind of a sort of multidisciplinary type of, of um, a, a field which looks at sort of economic development. Um, and from there, I was, I was sort of going on a path to sort of, I guess, working in an NGO or a humanitarian organization. Um, but I found that dissatisfying. And long story short, I wanted to basically figure out how the economic system worked um, more closely, and in particular the financial system. So I kind of invented a an adventure, as it were, into the financial system, and, and kind of went undercover as a as, as a broker for two years um, to learn about the system, um, which was very interesting. We can talk about that if you would like. Yeah, um, I would like to. And uh, since coming out of that, that's how I've, uh, I came to write the book, um, which was basically saying, you know, uh, so it's addressed to people who find the financial system daunting. Um, very much like how I used to find the financial system very daunting, and I'm sort of trying to help people through that, trying to sort of look at ways that they can engage with it. 
Yeah, and your your varied background is 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 very much reflected in the writing of the book, and you can you can gather um, both some of your writing style from your journalism background, but also some of these bits and pieces of other aspects of your background. I think uh, for that reason, it makes a very interesting and uh, accessible book to a number of different elements to it, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think those come across really well. Um, now, I'm very drawn to book covers, um, and, and uh, in doing this podcast, I have the great chance to, to have a stack of books on my uh, table, and I can look across them. Um, and yours has a great image on it. Um, would you describe for us the cover? And and maybe what it says about your book, uh, yeah, how you yes, came sure. to it. <laughs> well, the cover's got a got an octopus on it, um, which... Interestingly enough, I believe that this particular octopus in the cover of my book comes from one of the early versions of Karl Marx's Capital. Um, at least I believe that Pluto Press, my publisher, has some kind of, got some kind of permission to use that image. Um, and um, yeah, so basically, it's actually an octopus with a money bag as a head. Um, although some people might don't don't realize that, um, and I, I guess the octopus to me is a, a for, for, for sort of some of the, I guess maybe your traditional activist community, they will view the financial system as a extractive um, type of creature. Um, you can maybe think of the sort of imagery of Goldman Sachs as the vampire squid. Um, so some people see that in the octopus. Um, on the other hand, the octopus has got a kind of an interesting. Um, potentially misunderstood creature as well, um, a kind of a um, furtive sort of uh, um, struggles to, to, to sort of um, express to the world what it is. Um, so maybe you can, you, can see, you can have some sympathy for the octopus too. And I guess the book has this element to it. It's critical of finance, but it's also trying to um, engage with finance in a sort of um, not just in a knee-jerk kind of way. Yeah, there's sort of a Leviathan-like uh, quality to the image on uh, image on the cover, and I think it really does uh, as you read it. And I and I didn't realize that that was a, a bag of money on the the octopus's head. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something I I just picked up. Um, you talked a little bit about um, sort of what you call yourself uh, in the book. You also describe yourself as an urban deep ecologist. <laughs> I wonder if you can uh, uh, tell us about this title and tell us about it in the context. Of, of of this exploration that you did, uh, you I think you just uh, referred to it as kind of going undercover. So yeah. what is an urban deep ecologist and what does an urban deep ecologist do? Yeah, well, I guess that that term I was, was for want of a better way of describing myself. Um, I guess, so the deep ecologist section, let's take a look at that. I mean, I, in my original sort of background, I would say, is deep ecology in the terms of um, I grew up in South Africa, which is... For those of you who spent time in South Africa, it's quite a, um, it's got a lot of amazing wilderness. Um, a lot of my time growing up was actually in, in sort of the wild, and I, a lot of my sort of sense of identity comes from, quote unquote, the wild. Um, and I've always had an affinity for. So this, this is what kind of led, led to me sort of having environmentalist um, tendencies. Um, but deep ecology as a concept actually goes beyond traditional environmentalism. I mean, sort of a lot of sort of mainstream environmentalism is quite, uh, how do you put it, uh, sort of quite kitsch maybe. Um, it's very surface level. It's about like the aesthetic appearance of creatures and whether you like the panda or not. Um, deep ecology is a sort of a deeper philosophy, which is about, I guess, the fundamental oneness of all life on Earth. Um, so it's it's not a particularly mainstream philosophy. 
Um, and then in terms of the urban element, uh, I, I tend to not want to see human uh, society as being somehow separate from, quote-unquote, the environment. So I often try to view urban environments as being ecosystems in themselves which interact with broader ecosystems of the world. And I try to see the financial system like that as well. Um, so as, as they're being interconnected into real-world resources and real-world ecosystems. So maybe that's where the urban deep ecologist con concept comes from. Um, and then in terms of, you can also phrase that in terms of anthropology. Um, you know, a, a ecologist is somebody who observes ecosystems and how they work. If you put that into a human context, that just basically becomes what an anthropologist does. Um, so you observing human ecosystems, human interactions. Um, so in terms of, you know, on my, in, how that might work in the financial system, you're trying to watch how people use money. You're trying to watch how money flows, um, the power dynamics and that, et cetera, et cetera, all the various rituals that build up. And so maybe that's, that's what I try to do. Yeah. And, and where did you learn about this? You, you, um, you infiltrated or you went undercover or you, you, uh, had this experience. Tell us about that experience because um, it really does explain your both your, um, your your explanation of the global financial system and also some of the the kind of the recommendations you make later. So, uh, where were you? What did what did you do? Uh, were you successful at it, and and why didn't you stay in it? <laughs> well, it, the the um, part of the story comes to the fact that I studied for a year in Cambridge, doing a master's degree. Um, and I would became very aware in Cambridge um, how incredibly powerful the financial system was in terms of sucking so many of the graduates out of Cambridge into the financial system. And this we're talking about people who had engineering degrees, physics degrees, all sorts of stuff um, were all going to work for you know Goldman Sachs and these various firms. And this, this at the time I found quite abhorrent. Um, not only because of the sort of, in a sense, this concept of the talent being that might be used to build great things was going to build spreadsheets in, in a bank, um, but also the sense of there was, a, it was this very kind of uh, corporatized um, dream that was being sold to these people. That you know what you what you really have to do in society is, is to succeed, is to work for one of these giant um, exploitative institutions. Um, and I already sense in Cambridge that, that these institutions had a big hold over people's um, minds, as it were. Um, so I guess that's a kind of a the, sort of the dark fascination that built was when I was in, in Cambridge. And then, um, again, as I was saying, I, so I, I ended up, I had a very negative perspective of the financial system. Um, so when I decided I would try and infiltrate it, um, it had a very adventurous element because it was something that was very unusual for me and very different. So I actually just uh, I arrived in London with absolutely no idea about how I was going to get a job. Um, I was completely clueless about most elements of finance. Um, I made uh, uh, embarrassed myself hugely in many interviews. Um, I actually got a, oh, I got interviewed by Lehman Brothers a couple of times, um, which is which is pretty interesting. A few weeks before they went bust, um, but I ended up actually getting hired by a small startup firm. Um, which was started by a number of ex-traders and brokers um, who had left some of the big banks and wanted to go out on their own. So um, I ended up, it was kind of in a way a sort of a slightly underdog, unlikely crew of financial professionals, um, which for me was actually ideal because um, it was working in the financial sector, but it was also working in a kind of an underdog company. Um, and 
what the actual job involved was we were trying to broker over-the-counter derivatives, which are basically gigantic bets. Um, and uh, they were swap contracts, basically. Um, I'm not sure if you'd like me to explain more about what those are, but... Um, I, I, no, I think that... Um, go on. I, th- I think well, that, um, some, of the, some of the details are, are um, important, but um, the simple way give us as much as you think matters. Yeah, the simple way of explaining them is that they're basically very large bets on the economy. Um, and they can be used either for the purpose of speculation or they can be used for the purpose of trying to protect yourself against something in the economy. So, um, for example, I was spending a lot of my time phoning um, property fund managers. Uh, property fund managers are people who own large amounts of physical property. They might be trying to use one of those derivatives to protect themselves against a downturn in the property market. Um, alternatively, there might be a hedge fund that has absolutely no physical property, but might just be using it, uh, these derivatives as a way to bet on property. Um, uh, but in terms of how our actual firm was, was completely unsuccessful, largely because we were trying to start up in the middle of the financial crisis where all the banks um, were in a great state of distress and brokers during um, crisis can really, really struggle because um, you're trying to get people to int- – uh, the, the, what a broker is trying to do is trying to get – people to enter into transactions with each other. So when uh, there's a big downturn, um, people lose confidence and they don't actually want to interact. So it's quite, quite difficult. Um, uh, but so, it was, I mean, so in terms of our actual firm, it was a, it was a, bit, of a, a bit of a shambles, um, but at the same time, an incredibly interesting experience. Um, uh, the firm actually went bust a few years ago, if anybody's interested. <laughs> well, it's a sort of a simple explanation for why you didn't you didn't stay didn't stay uh, at, at the firm. Uh, well, no, I, I mean, was, the, how, why I didn't why I didn't stay? I was effectively thrown out of the firm after a while. Um, there's uh, one of the most fascinating elements of my experience was the fact that I went in with this quite anthropological, adventurous, slightly subversive outlook, and yet got very emotionally drawn into the whole um, world of finance. Um, and sort of started to understand why people get so hooked in it. Um, I ended up having really big fallouts with my boss and all sorts of things, which is a, a whole other story. But uh, um, needless to say, it really disrupted my sense of um, what I thought the financial sector was. Uh, yeah. So for listeners of this podcast, I think uh, the one of the aspects of the book that they're going to be most drawn to is is your views and your your um, what you have to say on activism. Um, and, and you suggest an approach to political activism or political campaigns um, that is very different than what we may have seen in the activist toolbox for the last 50 years. Um, so you don't write about organizing candlelight vigils at the headquarters of Goldman Sachs in London. Um, what if you could tell us a bit about some of the, the methods you describe in the book? Uh, what, what is available to the hacker? Um, what is available to those that want to approach global finance in a similarly heretical way as, as you do in, in the title of your book. So okay. what's in the toolbox? Um, perhaps the way to, a, that's quite a big sort of question, mm-hmm. but, but maybe what I should, the way I would say it initially is many activists or people who are concerned about the financial system um, approach it assuming it's something outside of themselves and it's assuming it's something that you can pitch yourself against um, in a quite an easy sort of way, in quite a straightforward kind of way. And if you even think about the Occupy movement, it's a very sort of concept of the financial sector and us. Um, 
I've never found it particularly useful, largely because everybody in society is uh, generally has some interact, some personal um, interaction with the financial system. For example, all the banks themselves are constructed upon the fact that people deposit their money in them. Um, so there's this kind of uh, way that nobody in society is actually free, um, not part of the financial system. So the the, the way I uh, the reason I chose the concept of the hacker um, to describe my approach to activism was actually the financial system, in a sense, has a lot of similarities to, for example, our relationship with high technology. So if you think about your computer, um, virtually everybody in, say, Western society interacts with a computer, um, but they're frequently doing it in a very one-way fashion. They, they, you're typing things on your keyboard, and you're aware that it does something, but you have no sense of actually how it works, unless you're actually a coder. Um, so similarly with the financial system, we're constantly interacting with it, but we very seldom have a sense of what's actually going on while we're interacting with it. Um, so I set that up as an analogy. So I was saying, you know, if you wanted to hack a piece of technology the sort of three elements of how you would do it would be, firstly, you would spend a lot of time um, exploring it openly, trying to sort of figure out how the hardware fit, fit it together, how the sort of coding worked, how the sort of pieces interacted. From that point, you would then be able to start to engage in what I call jamming, which is trying to mess around with those components. And thirdly, from that point, you can also start to rewire those components and sort of think about how you could recombine them in different ways. So that's why how the book is sort of, um, uh, I guess, uh, constructed. Um, and then in terms of how that actually plays out in real-world examples, um, some of the things I talk about would be more people trying to use financial instruments in subversive ways. So, for example, I talk about the use of activist hedge funds. Um, people trying to start up their own hedge funds as a way to mess around with the concept of what a hedge fund is. Actually, today I had a really interesting conversation with a guy called Axeli Vertinen in, in Finland who started an, an activist hedge fund called Robin Hood Minor Asset Management, um, which is actually a cooperative um, where ordinary people can, can buy into this cooperative and it sort of mimics Wall Street, and, and uh, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a complicated thing to explain, but basically they've designed a parasitic algorithm um, which tries to extract value from Wall Street and, and, uh, and distribute it to ordinary people. And that's kind of an example of an interesting financial hack, as it were. Um, I've got another friend uh, called Paolo Sirio who um, uh, did design something called Loophole for All, where he hacked into the Cayman Islands uh, company registry and started selling the companies to people. Um, as a kind of protest against the offshore system. So I guess a lot, of, a lot of the stuff I'm interested in are these types of things where people are kind of delving a bit onto the dark side and actually um, directly using financial instruments as a, as a means of activism. And, and the, in the background are not the police coming to get uh, your, <laughs> your colleagues. Uh, but it does raise uh, an element here, uh, which is um, a question of legality and, and question of sort of to what, to what ends. Um, yeah, what no, do you see a book like yours um, uh, accomplishing? What you know? What when you started the book? What were your aims? And upon completing it, uh, what do you see as the way that people are consuming it? Um, have you talked to people who who've read the book and, yeah. and what they're what they're doing with it? Do you what's what's that side of this? Interestingly enough, there's actually a few different groups that respond to the book. Um, 
on the one hand, I actually have a lot of financial professionals who really enjoy it. Um, partially because financial professionals always enjoy a book which is trying to explain how the system works because it's actually useful to a financial professional to know that. Um, and I've had quite a few interactions with traders who've read it who said, you know, actually I knew the technical content, but I'd never really thought about it in that structure before. I'd never really thought about it from that perspective. Um, so that's been quite an interesting experience for me. From and actually, these are, I get emails from from financial professionals saying, you know, this is really interesting. And what the other thing that that financial professionals like about it is it offers a way for them to get engaged with trying to build a better financial system. That um, uh, well, I guess it's it, it sort of it, it's it offers it, it's more than just banker bashing. It's it's trying to show how various people can get involved in building an alternative. Um, so the and in terms of the the activist community, I've tended to find that some uh, let's say the anarchist community responds to it fairly well, um, as well as quite pragmatic activists who are looking for um, campaign strategies um, for particular um, uh, campaigns they're running. Um, so uh, the, the the group that hasn't responded to it very well is so your traditional Marxist. Um, groupings, I think, um, who tend to view the world or tend to view the, for the objective of activism as some kind of you know revolution. Uh, revolution. Um, they haven't responded to the book very well because my book's much more in the spirit of what Occupy is, which is much more, um, uh, I guess, horizontalist. Um, does that does that sort of get to what? I, it, it does. I was, it I, does. I was being distracted there by a by a. a I was trying to close down a. <laughs> no, and, and I think I go back and do that again. No, it's not an easy. It's not an easy question to to answer. Um, in part because we don't know everyone who reads our books, and we certainly don't always get uh, responses, and that we we tend to get responses from um, you know, kind of a, an odd distribution of 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 who's who's read the book, and so. Uh, which is a particular issue for for a book yeah. like yours that is trying to challenge a number of different conventions. Um, the, the, group, and, the, the group that really I think finds it currently useful are it's, it's not so much your academic left wing um, who tend to be looking at large scale systemic change and you know so some of them will be like oh this doesn't offer a comprehensive enough systematic uh, approach to how you're going to alter the entire financial system. Um, of course, the problem with those types of approaches is that they don't offer anything useful or pragmatic for the average campaigner to actually use. Um, so the types of people who, who are currently finding it useful are, say, say, for example, your student divestment campaigners who are looking like, how do we campaign our on our universities to get out of fossil fuels? Um, or it's people who are trying to investigate corporations. You know, how do we figure out the investors who are behind this corporation and what and how we can actually sort of lobby them and appeal to them and so on? So, so it's, it's more sort of tactical than a large scale uh, um, system, systematic program, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think um, uh, the, how unconventional the book is, is really one of its greatest strengths. And um, I think is something that, that uh, people from a wide different uh, area of groups could could gain a lot from this. Um, let's uh, moving ahead. Um, is there another book in you? Are you working on something, a follow-up book, or something uh, that that uh, we can look forward to in the future? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, actually, I wrote a different book before I wrote this one, um, which 
so I was actually in the midst of writing a different one when I got approached by Pluto Press for this particular book. Um, my original book was looking at activist anthropology, so the use of anthropology as a, as a sort of tool of, um, how do you put it, maybe a, a, a trying to infiltrate large systems that people are concerned about. Um, and I guess that's something I would be interested in writing about, because anthropology as a discipline is quite... Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's got a lot of potentially interesting um, elements to, which are useful to campaign groups, um, and also just people generally in society. As I mean, I, I guess David Graeber. I'm not sure how well you know him, but I mean, he sort of popularized the idea of the anthropologist as activist um, with his work at, at Occupy. Um, but what people haven't really written about is the notion of how anthropologists are really good at crossing the self-other divide. Um, this notion of us and them. Uh, the whole art of anthropology is sort of trying to open yourself up so you can cross boundaries into different worlds. Um, and this hasn't really been explored very much as a as a sort of tool of activism, as it were. Um, so I've actually got quite a lot of people who, who, who contact me about this concept. So, for example, in Canada, there's a lot of people who, who are concerned about the, the tar sands development there. Um, and there are anthropology students who are now interested in going to actually work in the tar sands to try and figure out sort of human dynamics of that problem um, to get a more empathetic understanding of who's involved rather than just having a very reactionary type approach to it. Um, so I'd like to write, uh, write another book about that sometime. I mean, I've got, I've got lots of books, book ideas. Yeah, well, uh, until that, these books arrive, uh, <laughs> we have your current book, which is the Heretic's Guide to Global Finance Hacking, the Future of Money, yeah. uh, published by Pluto Press and available widely. Uh, I think it's a very readable book. And, Brett, I, I really do thank you for your time today. Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you. And if anybody wants to check out my blog, you can go to suitpossum.blogspot.com. And that's uh, S-U-I-T-P-O-S-S-U-M. It's also my Twitter name. Um, it's a long story about how I got that name. <laughs> with with the remaining two minutes that we have, would you give us the two-minute version of it? Um, yeah, or should they go to your website? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, exactly. So um, when I was at, at university at first, my, my nickname was Soul Possum. So like soul. Uh, um, and uh, Possum was a long story. That's, uh, I won't go into that. Um, and then my 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 uh, when I went to go work in the financial system, my my girlfriend at the time said, oh, "So now you're going to be a suit possum," um, and I kind of took on this idea because I wanted to wanted to develop the idea that you can have soul while having a suit, um, and just because you have a suit doesn't mean you don't have you don't have a soul. Um, so the, I guess I, I I kept this idea of the suit possum as a sort of figure of this. Uh, the slightly quirky type of figure which tries to be a hybrid between um, the mainstream sort of cold corporate world and the sort of more emotional alternative um, world of uh, yeah <laughs> activism well, and music and all those kind of things and artwork and stuff like that. Well, we'll share the, the website uh, on the, the podcast page, and everybody can check this out. Prescott, thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks so much, Heath.